<laughs> it feels like a lie. Uh, and I'm all about integrity. Yes. Ross. Um, <laughs> sorry. That administrator no, in you. No water, child. <laughs> kidding me? Hey, Ronnie. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit, and my co-host Matt Mendez brought on Dr. Angela Wright to chat with us about ARDS or ARDS, uh, and we'll also talk about how it relates to the COVID-19 infection. Dr. Wright is an EMS physician joining us from the University of Colorado, where she is the Assistant Medical Director for EMS, as well as the Medical Director for the EMS Educational Institute. Can you start by telling us what the heck ARDS stands for and how this topic is relevant to healthcare workers and specifically pre-hospital providers? ARDS stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. It's a series of syndromes that are on a spectrum with acute lung injury. And it's an important pathology to understand because it relates not only to COVID-19 and some other infections, but the management of it, both in the pre-hospital realm and in the hospital realm, is a little different than we think of when we traditionally are treating lung disease. So do you mind talking about the anatomy and physiology of the pulmonary system? One of the best ways that I like to try to review anatomy and physiology, uh, if you ever watched the magic school bus. Seatbelts, everyone! Please let this be a normal field trip with a friend. No way! But I, I try to get on a on a visual journey throughout the body and try to use that as a way to jog my memory of the specific anatomy and physiology. And really understanding the anatomy and physiology of the lungs and the airways is important to understanding this pathology. So when we think of airway, we typically think of the more macro picture, the nose, the mouth, the trachea, the bronchi. But remember, the airway physiology is really complex and incredibly elaborate. If we work our way through the path that oxygen takes, so Imagine you are an oxygen particle. You're going to start in the larynx, travel through the trachea, and then into the bronchi. The bronchi are then further going to divide into the bronchioles, which then eventually become the alveoli, which remember the alveoli is the very thin single cell layer that interfaces with the capillaries in the lungs to participate in gas exchange. So remember, oxygen's crossing through the cell layer from the alveoli to the capillaries, then to join the pulmonary circulation to be transported throughout the body. Similarly, as we're talking about gas exchange, the capillaries are offloading their CO2 into the alveoli, which then works its way backwards. So if you are imagining that you're a CO2 particle, you're going to go through the bronchioles, the bronchi, the trachea, the larynx, and out into the world. Now that we remember the anatomy, let's review how parts of the system can break down and fail us. So remember, there's different things that can cause respiratory failure. It can be a problem with oxygenation or a problem with ventilation. Quickly, a refresher, the problem with oxygenation occurs when there's difficulty delivering the oxygen to the organs throughout the body because of a problem with the distal airways, issues getting the oxygen into the capillaries and successfully delivering them. 
whereas problems with ventilation refer to issues mechanically moving oxygen to the distal lung fields and mechanically removing CO2. So when we're talking about problems with oxygen delivery to the organs, there's a number of different ways it can go wrong, how much oxygen is getting to the lungs, how efficiently gas exchange is occurring at the level of the alveoli, and how well the blood is moving through the lungs to receive the oxygen. There's a number of really complex math equations that I won't even pretend to remember or understand, honestly, that describe the different ways that oxygen delivery to the tissues can be insufficient. But for the sake of COVID and ARDS, we're going to review one of these called the P to F ratio. P to F ratio. The P to F ratio stated simply is the P. Pressure of oxygen within the blood compared to the F. Fraction or percent of oxygen that is being provided to the lungs. So if you took arterial blood and measured how much oxygen is in there compared to the fractional inspired oxygen or the FiO2, so the fraction of oxygen that's in the lungs or how much oxygen you're delivering to the alveoli. So you're trying to look at what you have in the blood compared to what is actually in the lungs themselves. And we use this in the hospital as a clinical indicator for hypoxemia. So if the P to F ratio is low, it would indicate severe lung injury or badness happening. So let's dissect that just a little more. So if you're delivering a high FiO2, so you're giving someone a significant amount of supplemental oxygen via ventilator, a non-rebreather, or a BiPAP, but then when you take the blood sample, the arterial sample, and the oxygen is low, that's going to give you a high denominator and a smaller numerator, so a lower ratio, meaning that you have a problem getting the oxygen you're delivering from the lungs actually into the blood. So in, in the field, F is either going to be 21%, which is what you know room air is, or we're going to have these patients on a non-rebreather or bagging them, which means F is 100%. And if we're giving someone 100% oxygen, we would expect that that oxygen would go down to the capillary, cross that wall, and give us a really high P number. In other words, get into the blood and be a super high number when we tested the blood. But if our F is 100%, we draw that blood and the P number is low, that means it's not crossing the lungs and there's a problem in the lungs. Is that a, another way to say it? Yeah, you got it. And if uh, it's not crossing the lungs, the lungs are bad. And in this case, maybe ARDS or COVID or both. Correct. So if I'm giving someone 100% oxygen via non-rebreather or bagging them or CPAP or BiPAP, that's my F, that's 100. And if their pulse ox says 90%, does that mean their P is 90? Is that good? It's not a great marker because the P to F ratio for the strict definitions of it really depend on that arterial saturation number, the partial pressure of oxygen that's in the arterial blood. So it's a little nuanced, but it's probably, it's certainly not enough to calculate the specific ratio. It can give you an idea of how sick the patient is, but for a strict definition of P to F, it's not a good marker to try to make those calculations. I was able to find a chart estimating your pulse ox and how it relates to your approximate PaO2. And I'll include this with the show notes, but it goes as such. So uh, SpO2 of 95% will be approximately a PaO2 of 75. And an SpO2 of 90%, a PaO2 of 60. An SpO2 of 85%, a PaO2 of 50. And an SpO2 of 80% will be approximately a PaO2 of 45%. 
but your non-rebreather is not actually going to get you an SpO2 of 100%. This is because you don't have a complete mask seal on that non-rebreather. And so even if you crank it at 15 liters, the best you're gonna get is 90% FiO2. And, and really it's gonna range somewhere between 60% and 90%. So you don't have an entirely accurate number for what your FiO2 is, and you don't have an entirely accurate number for what your PaO2 is in the field, but you can use some of this to grossly estimate what it might be. And remember, the PDF ratio is just a marker of poor oxygenation, and there are multiple things that can cause poor oxygenation, ARDS being one of those. We use the PDF to help us define ARDS. The definition of ARDS includes acute, meaning it was onset of over one week or less. There must be bilateral opacities on imaging consistent with pulmonary edema. The PDF ratio must be less than 200. And the imaging consistent with pulmonary edema must not be fully explained by cardiac failure or fluid overload. In fact, some sources refer to this as non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now, there are multiple causes of this, including trauma, sepsis, burns, transfusions, drug overdoses, and drownings. Okay, so you mentioned in the introduction ARDS, and then you brought up acute lung injury or ALI, and that there's a spectrum or that they're all related can you talk a little bit about that and what that means for patients? Yeah, in medicine, we love our, our acronyms and our abbreviations of everything. So these are just some textbook definitions of the spectrum of diseases, ALI being acute lung injury and ARDS, as we mentioned, being acute respiratory distress syndrome. So ALI, these are differentiated from one another by that P to F ratio that we had talked about. So ALI is the acute phase of this process. It's a P to F ratio of less than 300, meaning, what does that mean? Again, let's kind of review that's proportionally lower amount of oxygen in the blood than there should be. And ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is also acute onset in the P to F ratio, though, is less than 200. So there's even more of a discrepancy between the inspired oxygen and the oxygen that makes it into the arterial blood system. And these also have a little bit of difference in their radiographic findings. So the x-ray for acute lung injury, they're going to have bilateral infiltrates. It's going to look a lot like pulmonary edema or COVID as we're getting more and more comfortable looking at these. And then an ARDS is the same thing, bilateral infiltrates consistent with pulmonary edema, COVID, or this uh, alveolar process that's preventing the oxygen from getting into the blood. Both of these definitions also include the caveat that this low P to F ratio cannot be explained by another cause. So heart failure, um, flash pulmonary edema, they have a similar P to F ratio, but you don't have other findings that are indicating that that's what's causing this low ratio. That's what's causing the problem with oxygenation. So that's how you get the definition of ARDS and acute lung injury. All right, that's pretty textbook definition and a whole bunch of numbers and mumbo jumbo that we care about in the hospital. But give us something we can use and take to the field, Dr. Wright. How that relates clinically, why do we care about that in the field, in the street? These patients have hypoxic respiratory failure. They can't get oxygen from the outside world or their lungs into the bloodstream to then deliver to their tissues and organs. So their internal mechanisms are starving for oxygen, signaling shock to the body with tachycardia and an increased respiratory rate. Their SpO2 is going to be low because, as we kind of talked about, that's a measure of the fraction of oxygen in the blood, which we know is low in these patients. And on exam, you might hear ronchi, depending on how much material is in the alveoli, or you may just hear diminished breath sounds, poor air movement. And the bottom line is these patients look sick. They look very, very sick because they are. And so 
don't get caught up in the numbers and the P to Fs and the and the acronyms. Just remember, this is an oxygen delivery problem. You have oxygen that can't get across the alveolar membrane into the capillaries to be delivered to the body. These patients are going to look very, very ill, um, and they need to be transported quickly to the hospital. Remember that magic school bus oxygen ride we took earlier, where we went through the nose, down the larynx, into the trachea, past the main bronchus, and into the bronchioles, finally reaching the alveoli? Well, this is where we run into problems, at the alveoli. There is so much inflammation and damage to all of the alveoli throughout both lungs that oxygen delivery across this membrane into the capillaries is significantly hindered. Thus, the partial pressures within our arterial blood supply will be decreased, and as such, our arteries have less oxygen to deliver to our end organs, and end organ dysfunction may ensue. So how do we oxygenate these people? Can you talk a little bit about if, if we're bagging them, either with a mask and a BLS airway or an ET tube, are these people easy to bag, hard to bag? They can be anything they want. Um, and then if it's specifically related to COVID, does that change in, in how they are um, when it comes specifically to bagging them? Sure. That can be dependent on a lot of things. That plays a little bit more into compliance of the of the chest wall and of the lung tissue. And so some of that kind of depends on how far along this train they are, how far down this rabbit hole they've gone. You know, there's a lot of proteinaceous material that can accumulate in this illness in the alveolar membranes. And so if you're trying to push air past that, it can feel like it's hard to bag these patients because there's a lot of resistance. Now, depending on their underlying pathology, chest wall compliance, as I mentioned, that can factor in. Specifically with COVID, these patients can be hard to ventilate, but that's more of the ventilatory issue that we talk about, difference between oxygenation and ventilation. But if they're challenging to bag, you can be assured that they're sick. You don't know exactly where the process is going wrong. But if you're concerned for COVID or ARDS in the setting, the concern would then be that proteinaceous material has built up potentially through the alveoli and into the smaller airways, making it difficult for you to, to squeeze that bag and deliver that oxygen. How does all of this relate to COVID-19? Pretty loosely. Um, some people, so the compliance issue, some people say that COVID-19, actually, the lungs have pretty good compliance as opposed to what you would think of with traditional ARDS, that difficult to bag concept. But otherwise, they look pretty similar. There are maybe some nuanced differences in traditional ARDS and the severe respiratory findings that we're seeing in COVID-19. But for the most part, we're working off the understanding that the lung tissues in these patients are an ARDS reaction to the virus. The, the interesting stuff to think about is, is we don't know why some people progress to the severe ARDS picture and why some do not. From the ventilatory and positioning standpoint, we're treating them very similarly, but the biggest difference between COVID and ARDS from, say, a bacterial pneumonia or a drug overdose, both of which can cause ARDS, is the protection and PPE and stress that really gets created while we're treating these patients. So the guidelines behind managing these airways and ventilating these patients and treating them in the hospital are wrought with struggle from insecurity, from the appropriate PPE, from closed circuits and open circuits, from not aerosolizing. Is it airborne? Is it not airborne? And that's taking an already pretty complicated disease process. We talked about math. We talked about ratios. 
we were talking about cellular level stuff. So all things that are complex and stressful and adding a whole nother level of stress and complexity to it. So in my mind, that's kind of the biggest difference is. Let's recap some of this now. We reviewed our airway anatomy. We talked about how generally a high fraction of oxygen in the lungs should lead to a high pressure of oxygen in the blood. But in ARDS, there's so much proteinaceous material in those alveoli that oxygen can't diffuse correctly. And so despite a high fraction of oxygen in the lung, we have a lower than expected pressure of oxygen in the arterial blood. This is the basis for our P to F ratio and how it can help us determine disease severity. This buildup of proteinaceous material or edema in the lungs, if severe enough, can also lead to poor compliance of the lung tissue. This will make the patient feel as though they have stiff lungs that are difficult to bag. COVID-19 mimics a lot of these things, although with some nuances that we are still attempting to understand and honestly probably less important to us in the streets. Now that we have a background, let's talk treatment. You mentioned that the pathophysiological findings, in other words, the abnormal PDF ratio, the x-ray, and all those things can't be explained by another process such as CHF. I know how to treat CHF, but when it's not explained by something like CHF, I'm, I'm not sure I know how to treat it. Can you talk about how to treat ARDS? The goal here is lung protective ventilation. That's the term you'll hear over and over when treating this, lung protective ventilation. So we're using ideal body weight in low tidal volumes with a high PEEP. So high PEEP meaning high positive end expiratory pressure. Ideal body weight meaning you're calculating the amount of oxygen delivery based on what the ideal person would weigh at that height, not necessarily what they actually weigh. Because you can see if you use their actual weight, you could get way overshoot that. And then low tidal volumes, you're not delivering huge, huge breaths to these patients. And you're trying to combat the physiology that we went over. And the goal is to push through the crap in the alveoli, maintain oxygenation, and not cause barotrauma. You don't want to pop the lung with aggressive ventilatory settings. You're not pushing through all of that with an extreme amount of force with a huge tidal volume. This seems a bit counterintuitive. And to use some professional medical jargon here, there's just a bunch of crap in the lungs that you have to push through. We talked about how this is why they are hard to bag, but if you just throw massive amounts of volume and pressure at these patients to force the air through that crap, you're going to end up causing damage to the lungs. So what do we do? Well, if you have the patient on a vent or if your BVM has a PEEP valve, you're going to want to crank that PEEP up. Or if you're using CPAP, you're going to want to use your higher PEEP settings, something in the range of 10 to 20. What this does is it provides a continuous pressure that prevents those alveoli from collapsing under the weight of all that proteinaceous material, such that when a breath is delivered, it takes less inspiratory pressure or driving force in order to deliver that breath. On top of that, to protect the lungs, we're going to deliver the smallest breath possible in order to maintain oxygenation. What does this mean if you don't have a vent and all you have is a bag? It means giving the smallest breath you have in order to maintain adequate oxygen saturation in that patient. We already know to do this in every other situation, although I think we often forget it, but you bag just until chest rise. You don't hammer that entire bag full of air into the patient as hard and fast as you can. No, you bag until you see chest rise. No more. If we use a, a low tidal volume and and that is helpful, but doesn't that also make them acidic and hypercarbic from the decreased minute ventilation? Is that okay? Yes, human beings can actually 
tolerate variations in their pH and a little bit of an acidic pH in the setting of protecting their lungs. We don't worry so much about a little hypercarbia here. The name of the game is oxygenating and protecting those lungs while you do it. And there's a few other important things for the treatment here, some of which I think apply really well to the EMS world. One is the goal is to have these patients fluid neutral, if not a little bit negative. So you want them actually a little bit dry. I think our inclination is if somebody's super sick to start a couple IVs and start throwing saline in there, and that can actually be a big problem in these patients. So unless these patients are obviously hypovolemic or obviously dry on exam, I'm talking dry, tacky mucous membranes, really bad skin turgor, really dehydrated, be really careful giving these patients fluids. The last thing that these lungs need is a bunch of extra isotonic fluid to further fill up those alveoli from their sick capillaries and further impair gas exchange. So I'm not saying you should be pounding Lasix into these patients if you have that in your protocol, but I am saying just be ginger with the fluid administration if you're concerned that this might be going on. I think COVID-19 has brought the concept of proning to our paramedics um, a lot more than it was prior to COVID-19. Can you talk about why proning would work and if this is something we should be doing in the ambulance? Proning means turning someone onto their stomach, essentially, as opposed to your classic supine lying on their back in the ICU or on the cot look. It's not something to be done casually. It requires an immense amount of technical coordination, special beds, protecting the airway, depending on the clinical status of your patient. But switching to the prone position can significantly improve gas exchange in the ARDS patient. It's basically using gravity to divert blood away from the poorly aerated lungs into the posterior thorax and increase blood flow to the anterior thorax where the aeration is usually better. This is really well demonstrated with pictures, but I'm going to try to do my best here to explain why this works. So when the patient's laying on their back for a long time in the ICU, gravity is going to pull the fluid to the posterior aspect of the lungs, the part that's closest to the bed, because gravity. And this leaves very little lung tissue to actually participate in gas exchange because all the fluid settles to the back of the lungs, but the blood is a fluid too. So that's also going to be going preferentially to the posterior aspect of the lungs because of, again, gravity. So there's more blood flow going to the sick part of the lungs that are full of crap, and there's no point in blood going there because it can't get any oxygen from that aspect of the lungs. So when you prone somebody, when you flip them onto their belly, you're using gravity to your favor. So the crap is at the back of the lungs, but we're using gravity to then pull the blood to the part of the lungs that's actually working to improve getting oxygen from the working part of the lungs into the bloodstream. So if you can picture someone laying on their stomach, the blood flow is going to go to the happy part of the lungs, the anterior part of the thorax. And in the hospital, when we have patients with ARDS, especially with COVID, if they're on a nasal cannula or even a non-rebreather, we can actually ask them to self-prone. If they can tolerate it, we can say, hey, lay on your stomach. And sometimes that improves their oxygenation by using gravity in our favor. This can also be really anxiety-provoking for patients, though. Sometimes they feel more suffocated laying on their stomach. So like I said, they really have to be able to tolerate it. They have to be comfortable laying in that position in order to self-prone. And then if you're doing any sort of advanced airway management, you don't want to prone these patients outside of an ICU with all the qualified and technical staff and equipment to do so. So I think as far as it applies to the pre-hospital realm, again, if your patient is 
your concern for COVID or for ARDS for some other reason and take away the CHF in those patients. You don't want to be putting them in this category right now. Your concern for ARDS and COVID, they're on a non-rebreather. They're on three liters of nasal cannula, but they're talking to you. They seem okay. They're just having a difficult time breathing. You can ask them to lay on their stomachs on the cot, especially if it's a long transport. But for the most part, I would say do what you normally do and get them to the hospital quickly because proning is a really complex process in the intensive care unit. The data behind proning patients in ARDS showed it was only beneficial in the sickest patients who were admitted to the ICU with a PDF ratio of less than 150. And they were also proned for hours at a time. When I say hours at a time, I mean more than 16 hours at a time. So this is highly unlikely to be helpful in the back of your ambulance and will likely only serve to hinder your access to the patient and their airway. Now, there have been some anecdotal reports about proning awake COVID patients. However, as Dr. Wright said, I don't think this is anything to be done lightly. The risks of removing your access to the patient's airway and IVs probably outweigh any theoretical or anecdotal benefit here. I'll put a link to the study that showed the benefits of proning in ARDS patients in the show notes. All right, let's talk about the cool stuff. Do you have any tips or insights into airway management and considerations for these patients? Absolutely. Always want to talk about airway when we're talking about anything related to EMS because we have to because it's fun. It's the fun part of the job. So we talked about ventilation and oxygenation. And when the human body starts to fail at ventilating or oxygenating, sometimes that's an indication for intubation. These patients, however, and I'm, I'm speaking mostly to COVID-19 patients. Some of these principles can be applied to general ARDS, but in this era, let's talk about COVID and these intubations. And to be totally honest, uh, the next part is mostly based on my experience over the last six months of managing these patients in the ER. This isn't necessarily peer-reviewed information. This is more anecdotal from the things that I have dealt with in the recent times. But there's Definitely some unique differences and challenges in managing the COVID airway. We talked a little bit about uh, this before, but it's scarier than usual. You're in some ridiculous combination of a mask and PPE, and you can't see anything really or hear anything because your glasses are fogging up and you're in the respirator and no one can hear what you're asking for. And you're often with a skeleton crew, only two or three people to manage the airway which is very different than anything else we've trained for, although all you badass pre-hospital providers are very used to this, you know, intubating in challenging situations and only having one or two people to help you. But in our nice controlled settings of the ER, this is a, this is a unique challenge here. These patients have no reserve. And what I mean by that is that these patients are very, very quick to desaturate when you initiate RSI. So when you're starting the process, maybe their pulse ox or SpO2 can be low to begin with, think 86%, 88% on a non-rebreather and high-flow nasal cannula. Remember that all that oxygen you're throwing at their lungs is not crossing over into the capillary. So as soon as you paralyze these patients, their SATs go, and, and their respiratory drive is out, their SATs go to 60, then 50 in a matter of seconds. And you have to get the procedure done really quickly, which can be really stressful. Sometimes in intubations in a more controlled setting, we're used to having time to look, time to find the perfect view, time to pass the tube before we start to see those desaturations. These patients desaturate very, very fast. And then they're difficult to sedate. It's hard to manage keeping them sedated appropriately because they're hypermetabolic. They're so sick. Then they're difficult to prone. And then there's a lot of peri-intubation complications because they're just 
so sick. Think about everything we discussed. This is not healthy lung tissue. So airway management is challenging in healthy lung tissue. And these patients are often near death by the time you get to this point in their management, which makes it even more challenging to complete these procedures. And, and I don't want to say these things to invoke fear. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I think it is really important to point some of these out because they're unlike any airways that I've managed before in my career in those unique challenges and then the context of the global pandemic. The secretions are extra thick and glue-like also. And, and it's just a lot of things going into an already complicated and stressful situation. I don't know, Dr. Mendez, if you've had a similar experience in managing some of these airways in the emergency department, I'll kick that back to you and some of your anecdotes. Suction. Yeah. Have suction. I, when I was a paramedic, I never considered having a yank hour in my hand as I advance a laryngoscope uh, down a person's tongue. And as I've learned more about intubation and then had to intubate in the pandemic, I have uh, every tube I do now has a yank hour in my right hand advancing with my uh, Mac blade in my left hand. Oh man, this is a mega pearl. The biggest single change to my airway management after becoming a physician was realizing the importance of suction when intubating. I'm not just talking about for the vomitous or bloody airway, I mean for every airway. I remember working on the rig and looking at our little crappy portable suction device and thinking, eh, I don't really want to carry that in. I'm telling you, bring in the suction and lead with the suction when you intubate. You'll be amazed at how much it can improve your view by just clearing up that saliva and secretion out of the way. All right, I'll step off my soapbox now. Back to you guys. What can we take to our next shift on the street from what we talked about today? I think what this boils down to is really no matter how much oxygen you're going to throw at these patients, it may not make it into the blood to get to the organs because this is sick and injured lung tissue. So do your best, do what you can with the management strategies that we went over today, and then get these patients to the hospital where we will also be trying some of the strategies we talked about. Hefty dose of diesel is sometimes the best thing. These patients are sick and the EMS providers are the first interaction of the care team and they're part of the care team and your clinical judgment and clinical management in the field is absolutely essential to the successful care of these patients. So remember that and remember that when you're giving your hand off that what you do really, really matters. That's like very much her vibe and like perfect way of speaking. I have a vibe? Yes. Sweet. Uh, it's changing now. You're making it weird. <laughs> hey, if I made it all the way through this thing with making it weird at the very end, I'll take it. We're still under a half hour, so you're killing it. We can cut all this shit out. <laughs>